one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hi, I'm Sarah and this is the Squiggly Careers podcast. Where every week we take a different topic to do with work and we talk about some ideas, actions and tools to support you to navigate your squiggly career with that bit more confidence, clarity and control. This is one of our Ask the Expert episodes, and you'll hear me in conversation with Amy Edmondson. Together with Amy, we'll be talking about intelligent failure, and she'll be talking about her new book, The Right Kind of Wrong. Amy is one of the few guests to make a repeat appearance on the podcast, and she is totally worth it. She's so insightful and interesting, and her work has had a really big impact on me, both in terms of how we support other organisations with their career development, but also how I think about designing my days and the work that I do and trying to do the best work I possibly can. She is so enjoyable to have a conversation with because I think she has a lovely mix of optimism and openness as well as really wanting to make a positive difference through the work that she does there's a reason that i think she's just been crowned if that's the right word number one management thinker in thinkers 50 so i think it basically means you're the smartest thinker in your academic world in what you do so it's incredibly impressive but she holds that impressiveness very lightly and i hope you enjoy listening to the conversation today Amy, thank you so much for coming back to talk to me on the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm so excited about our conversation today. I'm so glad to be back. Thank you for having me. And we're going to jump straight in because, as I said, I've spent too long now interrogating your new book, Right Kind of Wrong. I've got way too many notes. So I was like, right, let's start with the basics. My sense is that not all failure is born equal. Does that feel fair? And how would you describe the different kinds of failure? It's completely fair. And in fact, that's the very heart and soul of the book is to appreciate that not all failure is born equal. And I identify three kinds of failure, but only one of them is good. Only one of them is welcome or should be welcome. And that is the intelligent failures. And intelligent failures are undesired results of novel forays in new territory. In other words, they're an experiment that you had good reason to believe might work, but that failed. Of course, scientists earn their living through intelligent failure and the occasional exciting success, as do elite athletes and, and so many others. So intelligent failures, and we can dig into those more, are 
the right kind of wrong. The other two kinds of failures are basic failure and complex failures. And basic failures are those undesired results that are caused by human error, by failing to do what we know how to do or we're trying to do for some reason. Complex failures are multi-causal. They're like the proverbial perfect storm where any one of the factors on their own wouldn't have caused a mishap, but because they all lined up at the same time in some weird way, they led to a failure. Accidents, many accidents are complex failures. And what is the difference between a mistake and a failure? I find this quite interesting. And I think a few times I got myself caught up in a few knots and I think I got there by the end. I'd like to hear your description to see whether I was along the right lines. Yes, it is one of my pet peeves that people use those two words interchangeably and they're not the same thing. So a mistake is deviation from a known process or practice where there is knowledge about how to get a result and it's not followed. A failure can be a mistake. It can be caused by a mistake. But intelligent failures are not mistakes. There's literally no way to have known in advance that something you tried wouldn't work until you tried it. I actually go so far as to say we shouldn't use the term trial and error. We should use the term trial and failure because it's not an error when it's in new territory. It's only an error when we have valid knowledge about what will work. That makes sense. And I think one of the sort of actually mid towards the end of the book, and I think this was from somebody you'd work with, you have this brilliant title that is always going to stay with me and definitely a bit of borrowed brilliance we'll bring into some of the work that we do. And you describe it as words to work by. And we are a big fan in careers and squiggly careers of sort of letting go of some unhelpful language, unlearning unhelpful language and replacing it with words that I think frame how we see the world. And actually, I was starting to write down a few notes about failure. So initially, I was like, okay, we've got to be comfortable with failure. Then I went further and I was like, no, we've got to celebrate failure. And then I went further and decided, oh, no, actually, do we actually have to reward it? Intelligent failure wow. in particular. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about, certainly from your research and the work that you've done, what unlearning has to happen for this intelligent failure you know, to be given a chance of succeeding? I think the first and most important unlearning is unlearning the wrongheaded belief that we're supposed to know everything, that we're supposed to be perfect, that we're supposed to get it right every time. We are fallible human beings. We were born fallible. You know, we will always be fallible. And we need to accept and, you know, almost embrace that reality. So unlearn the idea that we have to be perfect. Unlearn the idea that it's shameful to make a mistake or shameful to experience a failure. So we shouldn't let anyone know we've done it. And I think unlearn the idea that the best way to produce success in organizations is to have people be afraid of the consequences, especially of failure, right? If you're really afraid, if we tell you in no uncertain terms, failure is not allowed around here, then you'll be really motivated and do great work, right? Wrong, right? Especially not knowledge work. Any work that requires creativity, problem solving, you know, ingenuity is going to happen better in a more fearless environment. And that means you have to accept the reality that some things won't work out as hoped. And one of the things that struck me, I was reflecting on my intelligent failures. I think when you read the book, it encourages you to question, oh, what sort of failures do I have and and what's worked well? And one of the sort of reflections that I had 
is just how important the relationships perhaps within a team and leaders are if you want intelligent failure. So I was thinking about big experiment I did when I worked for Sainsbury's here in the UK, a big retailer. You know it, yep. And we made a TV show and it was a big high profile experiment that I was very clearly accountable for. We decided not to do a second series. And I think that could have gone one of two ways. It was absolutely the right thing. It was sort of, it was an intelligent failure. You know, it would be too much money to keep going. But I will never forget my leader at that time standing up in front of 150 people and saying how brilliant it had been and that it was the right thing to do and what we had learned, you know, why we weren't going to do it again. And I was thinking, crikey, my relationship with that work that I did at that time was dramatically different because somebody, like a, a very, very senior influential leader, had created the conditions where I could fail well. And I just wondered what your reflections were on the senior leaders, those people at the very top of these organizations, the sorts of things we need them to role model to make this happen. I think you've described it so well. I wish I could package that leader. <laughs> oh, you know, she's I'd get, brilliant. <laughs> I'd get very wealthy selling <laughs> that leader's playbook. And if you could sort of snap your fingers and make it happen, but it's exactly right. And the reason why what she did was right is that there's literally no way you could have known in advance whether or not that very good, interesting, creative idea would have worked without doing it. And you did it and it had some successes, but it didn't hit what it needed to hit to sort of be worthy of continuation. You celebrate those things. You celebrate the initiative, you celebrate the hard work that went into it, and you celebrate more than anything else, the learning that came from it. And the reason you want to do all those things is not obviously not to sort of encourage mediocre effort, but rather to encourage risk-taking in new territory of ideas that could possibly work, even be game-changing, and you want more of it, not less. And what do you think from the organizations that you've worked with, and you've actually also worked with lots of different kinds of organizations, so private, public sector, I always really like reading about some of the work you've done also in kind of hospitals and, and kind of care environments. What are the biggest barriers that stop us from doing this well? Because I think when you read both fearless organization and right kind of role, and when I talk to people about it, everyone nods their head. Who doesn't want to be working in this way? It creates high performance. You're in a high trust team. There's psychological safety. There's so much good stuff to be gained from this. And yet I still wouldn't say I see it day in, day out feels hard to do well. It is hard. <laughs> it is hard. It's really hard. I had to write a whole book about it because <laughs> it is hard. It's not natural. It's not instinctive. So you ask about barriers mm. and the barriers exist at the three fundamental levels of analysis, individual, group, and organizational. So individual, it's our self-talk. It's our erroneous beliefs about failure. You know, I can't make a mistake and I don't want to let my team down, and I want people to like me and think well of me, so I got to be perfect. It's a sort of wrong-headed, unhealthy, unhelpful belief. Group dynamics, almost inadvertently, in groups, we respond, you know, we applaud the successes, and we kind of groan with the failures, and, you know, we don't mean to do that, but we do it rather naturally and lead people to the conclusion that, yeah, I better get it right the first time. And then finally, organizational incentives often don't do, as you described that wonderful story, but instead the organizational incentives are in place to reward only success and really kind of to discourage and in some cases even humiliate people for failures. 
And you describe sort of three, I think, skills, but you can tell Mm -hmm. me if you would describe them in a different way. Three skills that I think individually we could all take accountability for increasing, which would help Mm -hmm. us with intelligent failures. So the self-awareness, situational awareness, and then like systems awareness. And I wonder for our listeners, if you could just describe those three things appreciating actually I think as you go through well certainly systems awareness that's not something that you can learn you know in 10 minutes the more I got into that the more fascinated I got but also mm-hmm. the more I thought you know when you start to realize I don't know what I don't know exactly <laughs> but I think useful for people to at least understand what those things are because I do think they are things that we all have agency over in terms of getting better at I agree and I would call them skills and maybe that's not entirely intuitive that self-awareness could be a skill of course it is so I'll describe self-awareness first which is the skill of being curious about and therefore becoming more aware of the impact you're having especially interpersonally and being aware of your self-talk for example and being aware of the ways in which you might be beating yourself up for coming up short when in fact you should be sort of enthusiastically welcoming new experiences and the learnings that they bring. I think the fundamental skill for self-awareness is choosing learning over knowing. Hardwired to kind of have the experience of thinking and feeling like we know, like I see reality. I don't. I see a partial reality filtered through my background expertise and biases, right? And so I've got to keep forcing myself to become curious. What am I missing? What do you see that I don't see? So self-awareness is the part that is entirely within your control, but it's hard still. Situation awareness is in a way a little easier to learn, and it's still not something we do naturally. And situation awareness for me is primarily about sizing up the degree of uncertainty. You know, how much is known about whether this new TV show will work in the future? Very little, right? It's highly uncertain. And then what are the stakes? And stakes primarily boil down to financial, reputational, and human safety. Of course, in healthcare, we're particularly concerned about human safety. And so depending on how high are the stakes and how high is the uncertainty, that dictates how much risk you can take. You know, really uncertain, very high stakes environments, you should be quite cautious. You should be having tiny experiments to see what you can learn to reduce some of that uncertainty. But, you know, if it's a sort of really low stakes, there's nothing economic or reputational or physical safety, and yet it's really uncertain, then you should be having as much fun as you can experimenting and learning, you know, behind closed doors, as it were. I think we naturally do a sort of one size fits all. I'm supposed to behave this way. I'm supposed to do, you know, accomplish things. And really our behavior should absolutely be modified to fit the uncertainty and stakes of the context. And then finally, system awareness is mostly about pausing to realize that the future matters and other people and systems and and events matter too. So when we make decisions, we often make them, or when we act, we often make things very narrowly, like, will this work? If I speak up, will someone listen to me? Versus thinking about, well, if I don't speak up, you know, a few days from now, that patient may suffer. System awareness is about stepping back to see that cause and effect are not so simple it's not linear and it's not simple. Things have longer term consequences, some of which are unpredictable, but many of them are predictable if you just give five minutes of thought to it. You resist the kind of quick 
easy decision and you just pause to think, okay, who or what else might be affected and when might that effect happen? And I think there you just gave a great example of sometimes something like systems awareness might feel overwhelming for people as a skill. But actually, even as a starting point, we often use the phrase press pause. Like when and where do you need to press pause? If you just did press pause and you just continually asked yourself that same question, who or what else might be impacted by this project, piece of work, decision, that's making the whole slightly bigger than the sum of the start. Exactly. It's just looking at how the parts interact, not just at the parts. And press pause is also a discipline I talk about. I use the word stop and pause in the self-awareness chapter because similarly, just pause, right? Stop, reflect on how I'm thinking about this challenge, whether there might be a better helpful way to think about it and then choose my response instead of just being in reaction mode. My other observation was, I wonder how often teams are having conversations about situational awareness, because I feel like maybe that's something that's not talked about very commonly. And I think it's often a barrier to people experimenting and taking more risks, because actually we haven't had the shared understanding of saying, well, for the objectives we've got or the goals that we're working on, what's high, medium, low stakes? What is the level of uncertainty? And even that really, you know, relatively basic mapping exercise mm-hmm. that I think you could probably do, even two or three of you, yep. probably just help you to identify, oh, actually, we've got some space to play here. Exactly. Actually, we've got a bit less space to play here because actually this is more about execution, but maybe we can experiment in small ways to continually improve. And actually, the reason that it's so prevalent for me is last week I had an example where I, in my head, the stakes were, I think I'd categorize them low to medium and somebody else had categorized the stakes more high to very high. And wow. actually it caused conflict because mm. I was like, oh, I'm over here Let's basically play. experimenting. <laughs> exactly. And then my co-founder was like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't think that's the space to play. I was thinking, oh, that's so interesting. Essentially, because we hadn't sort of pressed pause, and sort of agreed that shared understanding of stakes and certainty, actually it created challenges. Now, the good thing is we know each other well enough that we kind of could have the positive conflict, but I just thought, oh, that's what was missing because that conversation hadn't happened. No, unless that should sound like kind of an overwhelming new task to add to your list, it's not. It's actually, that's a conversation that can take two minutes. Yeah, We clarify some basic mental models about how we're seeing the situation. And then we discover, to our surprise, that we're seeing it differently. And then that can be an opportunity to kind of get on the same page. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You describe some perhaps characteristics or ways that we can start to practice failing well and some things to look out for. So one of the things that I found really interesting was you talk about knowing when to give up. It feels like there's a bit of a tension or dichotomy here that I was playing with in my brain. Yes. It's like, okay, well, I want to be persistent and I'm a big fan of grit. You reference Angela Duckworth's work and, and so I go, right, well, I want to be gritty and I sort of feel that's me at my best. Also, I can be a bit stubborn, like personally. I know I've got that characteristic. And so how could we help people like me sort of know when to give up like mm-hmm. what to look mm-hmm. for because I think I would sometimes be at risk of failing you know because you become too determined mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you don't maybe spot the signs of when you need to let go is that just me or no 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 <laughs> this is a very real tension and another way to put it when it's a tension is it it requires judgment mm. and sometimes the best way not always but sometimes the best way to arrive at a good judgment is with help you run it by someone else because, you know, am I crazy? Am I banging my head against this particular wall, you know, unfruitfully? Much, yeah. Um, <laughs> and to me, the diagnostic question is really, do you have good reason to believe that these are just hurdles that in fact are conquerable to get to this result that you can clearly see will have value if you can get there? Or am I the only one who sees the potential value here? And this is me, you know, perpetually trying to convince others to see the value I see, but I can't get anyone to see it my way. Then that's a real problem. Then it's okay, time to pivot. So I give the example in the book of Sarah Blakely, who, you know, famously created the Spanx company, which is a billion dollar brand. She had created sort of mock-ups of the product and her sisters and her friends loved it. But she could not get anyone to manufacture it. She knocked on dozens of doors at textile manufacturers, and they all said, you know, no, don't see it. Goodbye. But looking at the response of her potential customers led her to have confidence that the hurdle here is I got to get someone to make it, not whether or not it's an appealing, attractive product to the women I seek to sell to. There was a, a logical case to be made for persisting. Remember years ago, having a PhD student who had an idea that this was, you know, going to be this great research project, and nobody found it interesting. And at a certain point, you do have to pivot. 
because your audience are those people who don't find it interesting well i guess the point there is also about going well, what are the data points telling me right i really remember we had a similar experience with squiggly careers so when we first started talking about squiggly careers 10 years ago now individuals got it so people were straight away going yeah my career feels like I develop in different direction I'm squiggly I know yourself that you've done multiple really interesting different things so individuals got it actually initially organizations were still quite ladder-like we're about hierarchy we've got organizational structures people fit into boxes but actually because we've got the data points around how individuals were responding it gave us the confidence to keep going yes Actually, we thought we could overcome those hurdles. You know, we were right because then we got to a point where every organization was getting flatter. Everybody started to embrace the idea of much more kind of squiggly careers, internal mobility. But then there are other things that we've done where you start to think you might really like this idea, but nobody else does. No one else does. It's okay. It's okay. You'll have another idea. (laughs) And I thought it was interesting towards the end of your book. And you actually say very honestly that perhaps it's one of your regrets that you didn't research it sooner. But I wondered if you could just give a few perspectives on, does everybody have an equal opportunity to fail well? Because I think actually this idea of thinking about, well, how does privilege kind of overlay or surrounds this ability to fail intelligently. I sort of well, actually wasn't necessarily expecting it in the book. And I was like, actually, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, oh, that's really fascinating. So I wonder if you could just give us your point of view on yeah, that. Yeah, it's absolutely, I think, a very important point and one that I can make, but I can't fix per se, except that making it discussable so that we can do better societally, culturally. I mean, there's two obvious kinds of privilege, and one is economic, where, of course, you have more room to fail and, you know, not end up with nowhere to live and nothing to eat. You know, that's a real sort of platform opportunity to give you more wiggle room to try things. And then the other is being part of a majority group. You know, when you fail, you are not at risk of people attributing it to your category, So if you are a member of an underrepresented group in an organization, you are far more risk averse for good reason. You are worried that if I try something big and it fails, it will end up harming other people I care about because they will think, don't put someone like that in that role again. So there's more risk aversion, which ironically can end up increasing the chances of failure because you're less able to sort of seek the help you need and take the risks through which great success comes. And if people listening are really interested to find out more about that, I would point you to Sophie Williams' TED Talk on the glass ceiling. And she's got a new book coming out on that exact topic, all looking at privilege and progression and how those two things are intertwined. Um, So definitely worth looking at. Yeah. And then I wanted to sort of come to a close by connecting the dots between psychological safety and the right kind of wrong. And I think my assumption is that we need the psychological safety for intelligent failure. It feels hard to do without that condition or that kind of culture in place. Has that been your sense as you've sort of started to connect the dots between your work mm-hmm. yourself? Yes. And I'd love to hear a couple of examples of maybe anywhere sure. or any teams that you've seen who have managed to both have that psychological safety and then that has led to that intelligent failure. I'll back up and say that psychological safety, probably for the purposes of this book and this topic, is most relevant for people's willingness to take risk. You know, if you are worried about the consequences of failure in your team or organization, 
the easiest way to manage that risk is just to not try things where the outcomes yeah. don't, do anything new. Yeah. Right? don't do anything new which of course creates another kind of risk which is the risk of you know failing to do anything great or obsolescence downstream but so the most important reason why you need psychological safety is to be willing to take risks to do things that may not work out perfectly the first time and but it also has psychological safety has great relevance for the other kinds of failure too because many basic failures can be prevented if someone is willing to speak up and the same is true for complex failures most of the complex failures i have studied from the columbia shuttle disaster to the boeing 737 max catastrophes could have been prevented had people believed they had the psychological safety to speak up early with concerns and questions and challenges about what their organizations were doing and so that lack of psychological safety gives us a straight line to those failures so it matters for both it matters for being creative and innovative and out there and it matters for preventing the preventable failures in our lives and organizations and in a small way we are a good case to do that in our company we're obviously familiar with your work on psychological safety we were trying to think about how do we help people to speak up fast really about basic failures about mistakes essentially mm. And we tested a few ways of doing this, and actually a couple of ways didn't work. But the one that has and the one that stuck is we have something in our company called mistake moments. And the way we do mistake moments is we use Microsoft Teams. And on the same day a mistake happens, you share it on Teams. It's always called mistake moment. And our rule is you've only got one or two lines to describe the mistake, but all the emphasis is on the learning. So it's like, what was the mistake? Give me enough so I get what happened. But tell me, what have you learned? And what we find from that is that it stops mistakes getting magnified in people's minds. And of course, by everybody sharing and speaking up very fast, A, we can fix it fast, but really most importantly, we sort of learn together and also everybody sort of supports each other. And it just stops mistakes being something that you fear. But I think we have less basic failures now in our company because we have mistake moments. It took us a while to get there, you know, like in terms of like finding something that worked, but it is amazing how, particularly I think if you're someone like me, I have only ever worked in very big corporates, big PLCs, and nobody used the word mistake. 20 years career, I don't think I ever heard that word really, oh. or failure. And so actually I think one of those things that we're having to probably learn for the first time mm. is how do we talk about these things without, as you described, blaming ourselves, blaming each other, feeling like we're doing a bad job it's really mm -hmm. I think about redefining our relationship with some of these things like mistakes and failures and I think both yes. psychological safety and the right kind of wrong have really challenged me to do that which I very much appreciated thank you I think our failure to talk about failure ironically increases the chances that we'll have failure exactly right so it's you really don't want that you know I want to be clear I am anti-preventable failure like yeah. I really want those to be reduced to you know as small as possible but I know we're human and I know humans make mistakes so I know we're at risk and therefore we need to speak up quickly and early and if you wanted to leave our listeners with one thing today so people are listening and thinking okay Right. I've understood more about the work that Amy's done on research. This intelligent failure sort of sounds sensible. This is something we should be mm -hmm. getting better at. Where is a good place for individuals to start? And where is a good place for maybe organizations to start? So we'll have some people listening who will think kind of what can yeah. I do? 
And then we'll have some people listening who will think, well, what can I do in my with role my maybe team. as a leader with my team? Mm -hmm. So let me start with individuals. I'll say that you should pause to reflect on the fact that you are a fallible human being. You know you are. That's okay. In fact, you should know that your colleagues also know that you're a fallible human being. They just don't necessarily know that you know. Right? So <laughs> let them in on the secret. We actually can have more fun and like each other more when we start to just be honest and straightforward about our fallibility, right? Just kind of start with fallibility as a, a sort of aspect of life that was designed in for a reason. It can be fun, right, to play with it and to get over the need to be perfect. And for leaders, I think it's actually not unrelated, but it's like frequently remind people of the uncertainty that lies ahead, because that is a sort of recognition that what we do here together is hard. You know, we need to ensure that we have a clear line of sight. You know, if you see something I miss and don't share it, it's problematic. So framing up the reality in that way, frequently inviting people's thoughts by asking good questions, using techniques like you just described earlier of mistake moments or structures, little rituals and structures go a long way toward lowering the hurdle to having these kinds of very productive, very learning-oriented conversations. And finally, monitor your responses carefully. Now, that's probably the most important leadership skill is to force yourself to take a deep breath and have the most productive, learning-oriented, forward-facing response to bad news or wild ideas or anything else that's unwelcome. Thank you so much. And we always finish these conversations just asking you to share your best piece of career advice or your favorite bit of career advice. Maybe it's some advice that you were given from friends or family or a mentor along the way, or maybe it's just some words of wisdom that you'd like to leave us with today. Well, I'm going to build on the self-awareness bit to say a great bit of career advice is to choose learning over knowing. But really, what I really mean is choose the options with the steepest learning curve. Don't choose the options where you think, oh, I've got that. I'm going to be really good at that right off the bat. And or that's going to pay me a lot and that's good. If you choose learning, especially early in your career, over sort of proving and performing or economic immediate reward, the long-term rewards will be far greater. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Amy, for that conversation. And um, it lived up to my expectations. We did have some failure right before we were about to start. And at one point, <laughs> I thought, I don't think I can live with the irony of this failing and then failing to have the conversation. So I'm so glad we connected. I love your work. It inspires so much of what we do. So thank you for spending some time with me and our listeners today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's Squiggly Careers podcast. It was a really special episode for me, having the chance to speak to Amy again. I hope she writes another book in the future so we can get her on maybe for a third time for the triple. And I hope you heard some ideas and some actions that you can have a go putting into practice for yourself. If you ever have any ideas about guests that you would like to hear from or topics that you'd like us to cover, please get in touch. We're Helen and Sarah at squigglycareers.com. But that's everything for this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back with you again soon. Bye for now. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.